prayer. First Peter chapter four, and 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 we are starting. We'll be reading verses one to six. I I have the privilege of reading God's word to you today, and and I I was thinking a lot about that this week, and what a privilege that is. Um, I I read this week a quote from J.I. Packer describing just a way of of talking about what the Bible is and. And this, this unique dynamic and this is this unchanging word that, that God has revealed to us in the scriptures. And yet there's this, there's this, uh, dynamism about it that it's not cold and dead and dusty. He's still speaking to us through this word. And so J.I. Packer says of the Bible, there's, there's no truer or happier way to describe the scriptures than as God preaching. I, I don't know, that resonated with me this week. So let's listen attentively and expectantly to God preaching to us today as we read the Bible. We're to give ourselves to the public reading of the Scriptures. And so let's, let's devote ourselves to that now. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Okay. Well, a few, a few years ago, um, there, the, the zombie craze was sort of at its peak. And I think we particularly felt that around here. The uh, Walking Dead, a very popular television show, was filmed in Sonoy and the surrounding area. And, and so it was huge. It's still, the spinoffs are still very big. But there, and there were many blockbuster zombie feature films that came out in a row. And so it seems to have kind of quieted down. Uh, now, but there are still many committed fans to this genre. Uh, you can go to Sonoy. I sometimes, in the fall, when I drop my kids off school, I go down to Sonoy on Thursdays and study down there, and there would be multiple little walking tours going down Main Street in Sonoy, all these Walking Dead tours, which is just, I scratch my people from all over the world that are there just for the purpose of seeing this town, this fictional town. And so at its peak, people were talking both in person and online about what they'd do if a, a zombie apocalypse actually occurred. And so there was a lot of talk about that. Mo- I mean, most of it was for fun, but they're theorizing about how, coming up with all kinds of ideas on how you could survive uh, a zombie apocalypse. And now most of this was very lighthearted, there was and is this subgroup of people who who really took this seriously <laughs> and and there there were people who started stocking up and preparing for themselves for this imminent zombie apocalypse 
and they were even arming themselves with different kinds of whip weapons and getting equipment that would be perfect for when the zombies started coming after us in droves. And they had YouTube videos about how do you, you know, what are the, the best tactics to attack zombies and what doesn't work and all this kind of stuff. So for these people, all that zombie apocalypse stuff, it, it, it wasn't just talk. It wasn't a joke to them. It wasn't lighthearted. They actually believed that there is a real credible threat here. And how do we know that this is what they believed? Well, because, because they armed themselves. Because they prepare, because they invested in that preparation, because they have equipment, they have a plan. And so we can clearly see that this is something they take seriously. Now, let's go from the ridiculous now to the sublime and see what the connection here. Peter makes the case in this letter for a real imminent threat that we face as Christians. And and the danger we face is... One of the dangers, it's it's multifaceted, but one of the dangers he's focusing on here is suffering for the sake of the gospel. And and (coughs) what's interesting is that that Peter doesn't tell us to resist it. And he doesn't tell us how to avoid it, how to get around it, and to make sure it doesn't happen, how to separate ourselves from that possibility. No, he tells us how to prepare for it. And he tells us specifically in this text to arm ourselves. And so if we really believe what Peter is saying here, and if we believe what the Apostle Paul said when he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if we truly believe what Jesus himself said, that that the servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If we, if we really believe that, then that will be evident in our preparation. And so there, there's one imperative, there's one command in these six verses here that we're looking at today. And it's right there in verse 1. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ. And so he tells his original readers, he tells us to, to arm ourselves. Why? Why do, we, why do we need to arm ourselves? Again, we've already said this. You only need to arm yourself if there is a threat, if there's real danger. You, you only need to arm yourself if there's a war going on. When there's peace, there's no need to arm yourself. And so the fact that Peter calls us to be armed alerts us to the fact that we are not living in peacetime. There's real danger that exists. And one of those dangers, and it's one expression of really a, a larger scale war that's been being waged though, but one expression is persecution. But there is this, this larger, this larger uh, conflict. And I, I'm afraid that many of us don't take seriously enough um, the doctrine of the fall. And how messed up things really are. We may become kind of comfortable and cozy with the world around us, but we, 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 we don't often understand how tragically broken and dysfunctional our world really is. And there are these, this, this is this dysfunction, there are these threats, there are these temptations everywhere we look. It's a messed up world. And with that, we then don't take serious the presence and the reality of and, and the power of remaining sin in us. 
We, we miss that. And so instead we live kind of naively about it all. We live with unrealistic expectations in terms of the actual seductiveness of sin. We live oblivious to the fact that, as Peter's going to say later, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he might devour. And because of that, because we're cozy, because we're naive, because we can <coughs> cannot take it seriously, we, can, we, can, we, we don't arm ourselves well. We, we're kind of light-hearted about it all, instead of being serious. And because we don't arm ourselves well, we end up following, falling into areas of sin and temptation because we're not living defensively. So look again at the command. Verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So together, brothers and sisters, again, we've said this throughout this letter, but we have to keep coming back to this. He's not writing, this is not a personal letter to you or to any single Christian. He's writing to believers in churches. He's writing to us. And so together, we must arm ourselves with clear, precise, Christological thinking. Arm ourselves with the same thinking, the same purpose, the same mind of Christ. Arming ourselves to think biblically like Jesus Christ about ourselves, about our life, about the world. This is what He's calling us to. One of the unique ways that God has made you and I different from all other creation is our ability to think. I realize some of you demonstrate that much more clearly than the rest of us. But we all have this ability to think. And, and, and this is given by God. And Scripture teaches us that, that the, the profound role that our thinking has in our lives, our thinking always precedes our acting, our doing. And so we, we do based on how we think or, or what we believe. And so we're all, we're all kind of trying to make sense of life. We're all interpreters of life around us. We're all theologians. We're all philosophers by nature. And so we're all trying to make sense of this. This is what it means to be a human being. And so the call here is to be careful about how we think. We're to arm ourselves with right thinking, with Christological, that's Christ-centered, Christ-like thinking. To think about life in the same way that Christ thought. Alright, with that said, as, so, so he's calling us as suffering sojourners, a fresh expression we've used throughout this letter, just saying this is not our home, we're passing through this world, we are, we are, the, the world is at odds with us because we are Christ's people, and so we're going through there, and, and as we do this, we must arm ourselves with Christological thinking. And and when we do that, we're going to see four things that emerge from these verses. The first thing that's going to happen is we're going to understand what suffering was designed to do. We're going to understand what suffering is designed to do. Look again at verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so Peter, first thing we note, is that he's assuming that because we live in this fallen world, we will suffer. 
And if we live in this fallen world as a Christian, we are called to suffer. We're called to walk in the steps of Jesus. We've seen this already in this letter. And so he's assuming that suffering will be a universal experience in some way, shape, or form for all of God's people. And so the first thing he says is, the first thing you need to to do as you arm yourself with Christological thinking is is to have a biblical view of suffering. To understand its purpose. To understand why you suffer and what God is doing in that. And so, again, we're, we're wanting to think like Christ. And you think of Jesus. Why was Christ willing to leave the glories of heaven and this eternal bliss with the Father and the Spirit? Why was He willing to leave that to suffer? Why was He willing to suffer? Because He understood that his suffering was redemptive. It was purposeful. Not redemptive for him, not like I, he did enough to, to, to redeem himself. No, he's perfect, he's the holy, eternal Lamb of God. But, but as an act of redemption for others, for us, his suffering was redemptive, it was purposeful. And so, with that in mind, look at what it says here again. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now what in the world does that mean? Now there are, I know we thought last week was the challenging passage, and it was. It was this is much clearer, more straightforward. We're not going to be delving into a lot of difficulties. But there are different ideas of what this means. It, some think that this actually is referring to Jesus. Not that Jesus sinned and then he stopped sinning. But that there was this break with sin when he made payment for sin. I don't think that's the point. I think this is talking about people, believers. But what, what does that mean? Does it mean that suffering has this, some kind of magical quality about it that boom, you know, we, we suffer in this moment and then boom, sin is gone. We're no longer sinning. I, that's ridiculous. I mean, your life has been loaded with undeniable empirical evidence that that's not true this week. Mine has. So that, that, can't, that can't be what it's saying. So what does it mean? I think, again, this is where the context is so helpful to us here. And understanding what he's, the argument that he's been making now for, for, for many verses. In this statement, Peter's going back to, again, the argument he started in previous verses. When we live, when we speak, when we make choices for the sake of Christ, for the gospel, for righteousness sake, for doing good. These are some of the ways that Peter's talked about this. When we do those things, we're exposing ourselves to suffering and opposition. He's, again, he's made this point all the way from back, back in chapter 2. And so when we do that, when we suffer for righteousness sake, we're, we're not living our, for ourselves, but for the Lord. It's not then, in, the, in, in those times of suffering, it's not about my pleasure. It's not about my comfort. It's not, it's not about me. We're, we're willing, willingly exposing ourselves to suffering for the sake of Christ. And God is using that moment to work grace in me to deliver me from sin. And so, so then he says, no, notice he goes on, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And there, just in a few words, you have this rich theology of suffering. So when we suffer... God is working in us so that we would be those who no longer live lives that are driven by selfish, sinful, human passions and desires, 
But instead we become people who find joy in the will of God. That's what he's saying. That's what God is doing when we suffer for His sake. Suffering is for our sanctification. Suffering is meant to, to, to pry, by God, to pry open our clenched fists. To, to pry from our, 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 our fists, our hands, our closed hands, the sinful passions that we so hold, that we hold so tightly to. To, to pry from our hands the comforts that we cling to. To pry from our hands those things that aren't God's will, His desire for us. He uses it to, to open us and to, to release those things. This is God's grace to us, brothers and sisters. It is never, no suffering in your life, if you are a Christian, is ever meant for your pun, punishment or condemnation or judgment. It is only and always for God's good and loving design. It may be His fatherly discipline, but even then it's the Father's big heart of love for you that is, is the only purpose. He has no wrath. He has no anger. He has no hatred toward you left. It has all been absorbed by Jesus Christ if you were in Him. And so... This is what we first thing we see God's design in suffering for us as believers, and and this is why it's important. This is where the rubber meets the road as we're applying this passage. In times of suffering, we will be tempted to wonder if God is really with us. We'll be tempted to wonder if God is for us. We'll be tempted to in in moments of suffering. We'll be tempted to wonder if God is good. If he's faithful, if he's if he cares, if his promises are really true, if his word is true, we'll be tempted to wonder those things and to question those things. This is why we have to be, as Peter says, armed with this kind of thinking. We've got to think like Christ. We must understand that our suffering is not evidence of God's absence, it's evidence of his grace. And you, you look to Jesus as the perfect demonstration of this. You, you, Christ suffering on the cross, it, it's, not, it's not because of, uh, of, of God's... Uh, this, it's not because He's so far out of the purpose of God. God has a gracious purpose in it. And so it is with us. Is we've got to arm ourselves with Christ-like thinking. When, when we understand that, when we believe that, when we can say that, we will be better protected against the lies of the enemy that are whispered in our ears all the time. So how how wonderfully helpful and practical this is for us, dear friends. Because in those moments when we're facing difficulties and we're facing sufferings and, and hardships seem to just be coming and we and maybe we're we're facing the unexpected, the unthinkably tragic circumstances of life. And we're and, and we're in a place there of, of kind of spiritual vulnerability and danger we can be confident that God is actually using the, the surgical tool of suffering to, to, to do what only His grace can do in our lives. He's working. He's not far. He's not angry. He's, he's a demonstration of His grace. He's using suffering to rescue me from me. He's using suffering to rescue me from my bondage to my passions. To rescue me from my 
dogged devotion that I have a hard time letting go of, of doing, wanting to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it, how I want to do it. He uses suffering to, to, to pry my, from my hands that enslavement. He's helping me become a person who actually is willing to suffer for the sake of gospel and who can find joy in the will of God. What a, what a radical transformation in our lives as we see that. Do, do you see that work of transformation in your own life? Can, can you see evidences of that in our congregation? Or, or, or if you're honest, do you still find your greatest joy when you get to do get to have your own way, regardless? Do we still prefer to have our, our definition of comfort and ease for a brief moment? We care more about that, even that momentary comfort and ease, than we do about the transforming grace of God uh, where He works in us to, to live lives that are for His glory. So, consider those things. So, as, as, as we arm ourselves with this Christological thinking, at times when we suffer, the first thing is we're going to understand what suffering is designed by God's grace to do. All right, that brings the second point. And this is in verses 3 to 4. <coughs> we arm ourselves with Christological thinking. We're going to understand the perennial presence of temptation. The perennial presence of temptation. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles or pagans want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Notice verse 3, right there. For, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Isn't that an interesting expression? Well, it's a powerful one. Whatever sinning you've done in your past is enough. It suffices. It's enough. And, and we should never go back. Peter's saying there's been enough sinning going on in your past that you've been redeemed from by Christ. That's in your past for you. It's enough. Enough with it. But, <laughs> aren't we sometimes tempted to look back at our past life, at our past sins, as, those, as, as though those were kind of the good old days. And have this kind of rose-colored, these rose-colored glasses that we look at our past. As Christians, our lives have two volumes. Volume one is everything before Christ. Volume 2 begins the moment we trust in Jesus and we are born again and, and the, the, we have this new volume. And so for those of us living in Volume 2 now, are you tempted to look back at Volume 1 and think, man, that was really fun. We, we did a lot of stupid and wrong stuff, but what a thrill during that season of life. Can I have this? For some of you will get this, this Uncle Rico view of, of volume one of our Christian life. Peter's saying, if you're a Christian armed with the mind of Christ, you will not think about your old life that way. You will not. The past suffices for doing what the pagans do. 
Christ has redeemed us from that, from, the, from all that futility, from all that destructiveness. He's, he's redeemed us from that. Those, those good ideas we're tempted to kind of look longingly at uh, and think about, those were what required the Son of God to be nailed to the cross. And so as we arm ourselves with, with the Christological thinking about temptation and sin, we, we won't think back on those things from our past with amusement or levity or longing. No way. Enough with it. The past suffices. Let me just, another quick application for us. If, if you were born again early in life as a young child and you never participated in the sins listed here in volume one of your life, you have not missed a thing. There's, there's this stupid idea that I hear sometimes spoken of in Christian circles where the, the, it's like everybody has to go through this kind of wild season of life and you kind of sow your wild oats and you, you experience this life of sin before you come to faith in Christ and, and that's kind of a healthy, a good thing. That's crazy. That's so unbiblical. Sin is destructive. Sin robs joy. Sin is futile. Sin is a waste. It's not something you and I should play with or kind of wink at or joke about as though there's something fun or amusing about it. No, this is, and this is why we should pray for the salvation of the children around us and this church and your family and community. Pray that God would spare them from this destruction. You know, one other quick application, and then we're going to get move on in this verse. But for just from this first part of verse, there is good, wonderful news for you here. If this former life that Peter is talking about is your present life, because if if you are without Christ here today, we are honored that you are here. If you if you don't. If you don't understand all that's going on, all that's being said, that's okay. Listen, try to soak up, ask questions. We'd love to talk with you. But if you, are, if you don't have this hope that we're talking about, this new life that we're speaking about, you may not even understand what that means. And maybe your life, you are in the deep weeds of sin and sensuality right now in your life. And you just you showed up here and we're, we're glad. But there is hope for you in the Gospel of Christ. Because... Peter's first readers and a bunch of people in this room right now, this used to, we used to be the same in the same place. And the same gospel that is the power of God to save a little church-going kid that never knew anything different is the same gospel as the power of God to save the most hard-hearted pagan. And so there is wonderful news here for us. No matter how sinful your past or present is, you can be transformed by the crucified and risen Jesus Christ as you trust in Him. And you can know that transformation and that can begin today. And so, but for all, all brothers and sisters in this church, if you, are, if you are God's child, if Christ has invaded your life by His grace, which is what it is, then this old way of living, it should be something in your past. But the reason Peter says that, the reason he's even talking about these things, I think in the context, is because these temptations, they still exist all around us. It's not like the moment we come to Christ, we're like, we have these blinders to all of these 
sins and temptations that we used to, we used to be tempted by those things, but those things are so gone. That's not how it works. There, there is still this temptation that's ever present in our lives. We're tempted to, to, to see, see again our past wrongly. There's this threefold temptation I think we face that Peter opens up for us here. One, it's the sensual temptation. So look how he describes this. This is what used to characterize you. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, parties, and lawless idolatry. So sensuality, or some of your translations may say debauchery. It's just all types of evil without any moral restraint. Just doing what I want to do. Passions or lust, just intense desires that can control us. It can be for anything. Drunkenness, that one's obvious. Orgies, just where social life begins to revolve around sex and sexual immorality. Drinking parties, again, gatherings where the focus is on, on consumption of large amounts of alcohol and being drunk. Lawless idolatry, we're going to come back to that. But we are still tempted to go wherever our physical desires want to lead us to go. That hasn't changed. We're still tempted. If, if I find pleasure in food, it doesn't make a difference whether I'm hungry or not. Or whether the food is healthy or not. My, my, I, I'm going to be tempted to go wherever that desire leads me. That's sensuality. That's a sensual aspect of temptation. When my desire is sexual fulfillment, I'm going to be tempted to, to, to go wherever that desire leads me. If I want to be the center of attention, I'm going to tempt it to keep working myself towards the middle and the focus of the group. I'm going to try and tell a better story than everybody else. I'm going to try to appear more knowledgeable on whatever subject is being talked about than anybody else. So this, this, that sensuality, that's going wherever your desires lead you. And that's a real temptation, even now. Our lives used to be consumed with that, but it's still a temptation for us. And so here, and here's what Peter calls this. I come back to that last expression: lawless idolatry. I think, and this is a justifiable uh, meaning and understanding of the of the language here. I think a better translation of that "and" in verse three, right before lawless idolatry, would be "even." I, I think all of those things that he's listed they add up to idolatry. And, and what, what is the idol there? It's the idol of self. It's self. It's selfish passions and desires. If you're not serving God, if you're not recognizing His position in your life, you're going to inevitably put yourself in that position. And your desires and your life will become all about, consumed with satisfying your cravings, your, uh, your passions, your desires. Be honest and tell me that's not still a temptation for you. You can't. You can't tell me that. Husbands, tell me you're not ever tempted to use the, the, the force of your strength or the volume of your voice to put your wife and your children in their place and you don't find some pleasure and, and power in that moment. It's not a temptation. Or men, tell me that you're free from all forms of sexual temptation. That there's never a moment when you look too long. There's never a moment when your mind moves onto those things on which it should not move. There's never a moment when you, when, when you, you watch a program on, 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 TV sh- on TV that you know doesn't protect your soul. There's never a moment when you click a link at the bottom of the, the, the little website that, that you know you shouldn't click and follow. 
Women, tell me you're never tempted to do do what you can to present an image of, of having everything together in your life before other people. And, and, and maybe in the people in front of you or, or on social media, that this isn't a temptation. Make sure the angle's just right on the photos and, and you obsess over likes and follows and views and you crave comments. Tell me you never use the good gifts that God has given us in ways that they're not meant to be used. Wine, I mean, this is the example he uses here. You drink too much, you drink too often, you drink to numb your heart. You, you run to that instead of running to the Messiah and for help in dealing with life. We need to be realistic. These temptations are all around us and we need to be wise, we need to be humble and, and when, when it comes to temptation we need to be able to say, I wish that I could say, Father, that this was only something in my past but that is not reality. I am still tempted to go where my desires lead me. And so, so this is part of the temptation, part of the battle. Why we've got to arm ourselves with a proper understanding of what temptation is and its perennial presence in our lives. So part of it's sensual. There's another aspect. It's this communal temptation. It's communal temptation. It's hard to be that salmon swimming upstream. It's hard to live differently. And so he, he, he says in, in verse, um, was it, verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. So parents, it's hard for your children at school to stand for what is right. You must pray for them. It's, it's hard for the man of business to, to not take part in the horrible coarse joking that goes on all around him. It's hard to, to, to not care so much about being accepted. It's hard not to crave being part of the in-group. Nobody wants to be thought of as the weirdo. Unless you're some kind of weirdo, and you get a kick out of that. But, but we feel this real pressure, this, the pressure of community. There's this communal aspect of temptation. We're, we're, we're outside, we're different, we're, we're tempted to move in a direction we know we shouldn't go, because to go in the other direction is so contrary to the world around us and to the people in our lives. So that's another sensual, it's communal, and lastly, it's, it's a painful temptation. And this end of verse 4 says, and they malign you. They malign you. It's not only hard to stand alone, but when you do, you expose yourself to misunderstanding and even to mockery. You might be maligned, and this really, really hurts, doesn't it? I mean, this is, Peter's made much of this, both as something as we experience as Christians, and it's also a big emphasis of his of what Christ experienced, that reviling, that, that mockery, and that he focuses in on that in Christ's sufferings. And, and why does it hurt? It hurts because God has made us to be social beings. And so, the temptation is, is we can be maligned. And so the, the question before us again, backing up, we're to be arming ourselves with Christological thinking, understanding the, 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 the purpose and the design of suffering, and understanding the perennial presence of temptation in our lives. Are you thinking wisely and carefully and Christologically about the temptations that are all around you? Our Lord, Scripture says, was tempted in all points, 
as we are, and yet without sin. Now we're not told that, so the encouragement there is not, okay, then quit sinning. Jesus did it, you can do it too. Quit, quit whining and just toughen up and quit. No, the encouragement is that you can go to Him in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your temptation, and you find a sympathetic high priest who knows the temptation that you're facing. That's not to let us off the hook and say, okay, well, I can do whatever. Well, no, you, but you have Christ, and you can go to Him. He's been there. And He's pleading for you, and He's praying for you, and He's interceding for you. But are, are, are you instead, though, and instead of being armed with this kind of thinking, are you sort of naive to the reality of temptation and sin around you? Or is there this disconnect between your public Sunday persona and, and the actual realities of your private life the rest of the week? Are you thinking biblically? Are you thinking Christologically about temptation and sin? Are you arming yourself with this kind of thinking because you are aware of the danger as we arm ourselves with the mindset of Jesus, we will gladly choose suffering over sin. Third, third thing that's going to happen as we arm ourselves with Christ-like thinking is we're going to understand the certainty of future judgment. <laughs> understand the certainty of future judgment. Verse 5. So you have these who who all around us, we've we're, we're been cut off now because they're, we're not good, giving in to the same flood of debauchery and they're even maligning us. And he says in verse 5, but, a little strong adversity, but, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is the very definition of righteousness and justice. And, and this world is marching toward full and final justice and they will face God. He's saying this to be of great encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. It's to be an encouragement to believers that there will be a day when your faith and when your suffering and when your obedience will be vindicated by God's justice. There will be a day when the, the mocker, the one who maligns you, will be silenced judged forever. So we can live in hope, knowing that this story, the story is not just stuck in your moment of suffering. That's not it. <coughs> we, we must understand that what we're going through is not just some kind of meaningless chaos uh, that just kind of cycles around us and occasionally we collide with it. No, we are part of this grand story that God is accomplishing and this story of redemption that's marching towards culmination that will come and, and someday justice will be done. This is, what, this is what Peter is saying to encourage suffering people. As surely as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, so certain we can be that judgment is coming. This is what Acts 17.31 says, that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, Christ Jesus, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. We can be certain. Brothers and sisters, there are moments in your life when that is all you have. There's no prospect of human justice 
and 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 things being worked out here in your in your mind, but there is this sure promise that any wrongs will be dealt with by God. And we don't we don't hold on to that vindictively with glee. We pray for their conversion. We pray for their salvation. We'll pray that they'll know mercy, not grace, or not justice. But we we can be certain that in the end, justice will be done. Evil will lose. Sin will die. And righteousness and truth and justice will reign forever and ever and ever. Praise God. Peter's saying, you trust the judgment of God. Trust it. You don't have to settle any score. God will. Last thing, as we arm ourselves Christologically, something's going to happen. We're going to understand one one more thing. We're going to understand, forth the hope of the Gospel. Understand the hope of the Gospel. Verse 6 is another one of those difficult verses in the section of 1 Peter. I know Peter talked about how difficult some of the things that Paul wrote were to understand, but Peter... You had your own challenges here, and and there's many in this letter. But verse 6 says, For this is why the gospel was preached, notice the next expression, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. And so we have some kind of confusing words at face value. But here's what I think he's saying. We're not gonna, I'm not going to march through all the views like we did last week. I don't think that that's necessary at this point. The gospel, this is what I think he's saying. The gospel was preached to those who have since died. They're, they're dead as Peter's writing this letter. They were alive when they were preached to, but now they're dead. And, and so, and these believers who've died, they will live by the Spirit of God. I think that's the simple meaning of what he's saying here. And again, in words that his first readers understood crystal clear, we language in different context culture. All of us still face the, the result of Adam's sin, the, the result of physical death. We will die unless Christ returns before we uh, enter the grave. But the hope of the gospel is this, is there is life on the other side of the grave. This is what he's encouraging. There, there really is eternal life. This is not all that there is. We must arm ourselves with that, that way of Christologically thinking about, about, about eternity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.19 that if, we, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, what a waste if this is all there is. So this, this life we've been called to, it makes no sense. Why suffer for righteousness' sake? Why suffer for the gospel's sake if this is all there is? It makes no sense without eternity. So we, we have to hold on to the promise of the gospel with both hands and cling to it, brothers and sisters. The gospel isn't just for the unconverted and what gets them into heaven. This is a gospel is for Christians. It's for us to cling to, to believe in, to cherish, to, to hold tightly to. This gospel promise of eternal life that Christ came and he, and he lived this perfect life and yet He died as our substitute for our sin, shed His blood for us, rose again, conquering death, that He might gift us with this, with this thing that's impossible for us to wrap our brains fully around. What? Eternal life. 
eternal life. Life that lasts forever. So in that moment when you're being persecuted, in that moment when you're being mocked, in that moment when you are being maligned, in that moment when you're the little salmon swimming upstream and and you seem to be going against everybody in your school, everybody in your workplace, and in that moment of suffering, in that moment when you're facing incredible temptations to go back to the old life, in that moment when you're misunderstood, in that moment you say to yourself, this is not all there is. This is, this is not all there is. Eternity is sure. It is real. And I will live beyond this forever and ever and ever and ever. And so we must understand that hope of the gospel and trust in it. Well, dear friends, are you armed? Are you arming yourself with this kind of thinking? Present tense consistently as a habit of life, arm yourselves with thinking like Christ? Are you thinking clearly? Are you thinking Christologically? Maybe you're thinking that way right now in the sermon. (laughs) Maybe you're thinking that way this morning. We're singing songs. May the mind of Christ... My Savior, you know, be, may that be mine. Jesus, keep me near the cross. We, we think that way when we're singing. We think that way when we're hearing wonderful truths preached and read from the Scriptures. But is this the way you think in those kind of mundane moments of everyday life in the fallen world where all of us live? Do you have a biblical view of suffering that guards you against the enemy's lies that would tell you this is this is a sign of God's absence instead of a sign of His grace? Do you, have a, do you understand the design of suffering? Do you, do you have a realistic view of that kind of trifold temptation that, that we all face in this fallen world? Do you think rightly about coming judgment and about the justice of God in a way that gives you hope? Are you armed with a way of thinking about life that that your life now is shaped by then? That we live in light of eternity right now in the here and now. This is the way of thinking that we must arm ourselves with. And it gives us a defense against the war that's being fought every single day, again and again and again in our lives. It's being fought this right now as we're meeting. It's going to be fought this afternoon when you go home. It's going to be fought next tomorrow morning when you wake up, go to work, go to school, whatever you got going on. This is going to be the battle. And Peter says, I'm going to back up to verse 18 and then jump back to verse 1. Look at this where we looked at last time. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then jump to 4.1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Let's pray. Father, we pray that each one of us and collectively we as a church would have the humility to say that we, we, we don't have in and of ourselves the, the armor we need. We need the mind of Christ. We need the person of Christ. 
We need the, the redemptive value of Christ's death. We need the blood of Christ. We, and we have these resources. But yet we're still called to actively arm ourselves with this kind of thinking, this kind of Christ-like thinking. And so I pray that as we, as we go into this coming week, as we even continue our time here today, that, that we would be actively arming ourselves, being mindful that there is a war, that there are dangers, there are real threats to us, and, and there are principalities and rulers, and there's a devil, and there's a world, and there's our own flesh, and these are all at war with us, Father. And yet we have what we need in Christ. And so I pray that if, if, if nothing else, Father, that we would, we would uh, do what the Apostle Paul uh, calls us to, or what the writer of Hebrews calls us to, that, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How did he think about suffering? For who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Lord, help us consider him. Him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Why? So that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Oh Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to give a concentrated Look at Christ. And moment by moment, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.